How's everyone doing today? Good? Okay. Better. Oh, okay. Uh, well, my name's Kristen. We haven't met yet. Um, if you hear any really cute baby noises, it's probably my son back there, because um, we're going to tag team it today, probably. Um, unless he's asleep. I don't know. No, he's not. Okay. No. Um, so he's probably going to say some things. Um, but anyway, I uh, am so excited to be with you. I get to be on the teaching team here at Regen, uh, which is such an honor. Um, before I get started, I do want to just like take a second to, um, I don't know, applaud, thank the rest of the teaching team for all that y'all have done this summer and everyone else who has kept the church running. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and I'm not just saying this to like toot my own horn. I'm, I want to toot everyone else's horn, you know, um, because I will be honest with you. It has been a fight all summer. Every single one of us who have gotten up here to preach to you have faced spiritual attack after spiritual attack after like attack after attack, like in the weeks coming up to their sermon. And um, it's not a coincidence. Um, and I yeah, so I hope that you know uh, how much you are loved and cared for, and um, yeah, if you have a second to like thank someone or say a little prayer of gratitude, um, or just say a little prayer for Pastor Dick, who is, I'm sure, facing who knows what, uh, having to come teach next week. So I just wanted to put that out there, because I think we come up here and we look like we have it all together, and um, we are like fighting <laughs> tooth and nail to get up here on Sunday mornings, so... Um, thank you for letting us be here and letting us up here. Um, it is an honor, no doubt. So, I'll get off my thing, soapbox. Um, okay, so this week, uh, well, sorry, if you were here last week, Amanda preached on the parable of the lost sheep. Um, and so this week, luckily, we're kind of in that same neighborhood in the text. So we're going to be kind of continuing on from what she had to say last week. So uh, last week was about a lost sheep, and this week is about a lost son. So you may know it as the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of the big ones. You know, it's one of the ones a, a lot of people, especially if you grew up in a church, you've maybe heard before, at least heard about, maybe you've heard that word prodigal, and you're like, I don't really know what that means, but okay. Um... And if you're not, if you didn't grow up in a church, maybe you haven't heard the words prodigal son before, but maybe you're familiar with the idea, like this general concept of, you know, the story where there's a family and a son is wayward. He like leaves the family, takes a wrong turn, takes 10 wrong turns, and then he comes to his senses and he comes back home and he's humble and his father takes him back, you know, like these are, you know, we see it all throughout pop culture. Um, so that's kind of the, the overarching story of what we've got going on today. Um, and it's, it's captured the hearts and minds of artists and people um, for centuries. Um, so I do have a couple examples because I, I did study art history, so this is my, my one chance. Um, so yeah, we've got a few paintings uh, that are like about the prodigal son. So Rembrandt, how fancy, oh my goodness. Okay, next one. Okay, a couple more. Uh, you can see it, that one's my favorite because it has like, a dog. You would not believe. 
I, I only chose four for you today, but you would not believe, this is a side note, how many, when I googled like paintings, prodigal son, so many of them have a dog like licking the, the prodigal son as he's returning. Oh, it's not in the scripture. Where did they get that? But I love it, okay? But that, those look really nice, right? Like, there's other stuff going on in the paintings, but really the focus is this moment between father and son. And that's definitely part of the story here, um, but I think there's a little bit more we can get from this parable. So whether you've heard this story a million times or never before in your life, um, I hope that we're all able to hear it with some fresh ears today. So let's start. We're going to read it. I know. Who could have thunk? Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 15. And I actually do recommend reading along because I am going to read the whole thing. Um, it's a longish story. And I don't know about your attention span, but I'm a millennial and I need help. So um, just to catch up with where we're at in the text, Jesus is address he's doing his thing, right? And the Pharisees are not into it. Okay? And they have been criticizing him, and they're upset that he's teaching all these sinners. He's dining with them. He's these tax collectors, uh, notorious sinners. And so he's addressing their criticism, right? And so he tells the story of the lost sheep, which, like I said, Amanda preached on last week. Then he tells a short parable about a woman who loses a coin. She finds it, and then she celebrates. And then now he's wrapping it up with a story of the lost son. So we've got three lost things right now. So again, meet me in Luke 15. We're going to start at verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now, before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land where he wasted all of his money in wild living. About this time, sorry, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, hmm, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both you and heaven, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired hand. So he does what he says he's going to do. He returns home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He said to, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. 
that's where we think the story ends, but we got, we got some more ground to tread. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father was, has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you, and you never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing a fattened calf? His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Okay, let me start by saying, if we go back to the beginning of the story, the son is asking for his inheritance early. Um, now, this was not common practice at the time. As you'd expect, inheritances typically were given out once a parent died. Um, so there is some debate as to how this request would have been received by the father. Um, some say this is essentially the equivalent of the son wishing death upon his father. It's basically him saying, like, you're kind of dead to me. Can I have my inheritance? Um, others say that maybe it wasn't that much of an insult, but it was still weird. It was still not common practice. But regardless of if it was an insult or not, we see the father doesn't really hesitate. He just agrees and gives the son what he wants, divides his estate. And then pretty quickly, the son goes off and squanders his whole inheritance on wild living. Um, other translations use the word reckless or wasteful. And that's actually kind of the definition of prodigal, if you ever wondered what the prodigal son was. It's um, spending money uh, or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. So obviously, if you're spending like that, your money's going to run out. And before long, he's starving. And now you know it's bad when pig food is starting to look good, right? Like, you're like, mmm, yummy. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, he's like, this is getting bad. So he's, he's got to go back home, right? Because at least the servants there aren't eating pig slop. He's desperate and starving. We don't know if he was actually repentant, like did he actually feel bad, or um, if he was just in this state of desperation and just needed a warm meal. Either way, he heads back home. And unlike those paintings that we looked at earlier, he doesn't even make it to the front door before his father is running to him and embracing him and calling on his servants to get the party going. The son had planned this whole speech, right? He's going to like say he's sorry, he's going to become a hired hand, all these things, but the father doesn't even let him finish, right? He barely gets his apology out. In fact, we see uh, that the son doesn't even expect to be taken in as a son again. He just wants to eat. <laughs> he just wants to, to be a hired hand, and he's, he's fine with that. He doesn't expect to be lavished upon. But the father welcomes him back in his place as son, 
and gives him this extravagant party. So this compassion and love for the lost, or the prodigal son, is what most people remember this story for, which makes sense. It, it sounds it's really nice, it's lovely, it is, it's heartwarming. Um, and we like to, we tend to identify ourselves with the younger son. If you're a Christian in the room, you've likely had to come to terms with your own lostness at some point. After all, we know we all sin, we all fall short of God's standard. Um, because it's really only when we look around in our pig pit that we can see uh, that we need to head home to our father. So we've all been there, whether you've lived a wild life or kind of, you know, got saved when you were 10. Um, you know, we've all, we're all lost in some way. And so this story continues to be an open invitation to those that are lost. It is there um, as a reminder that no matter how far you wander, how wildly or recklessly you live, once you decide to come home, the Father is not only waiting for you, he's running towards you. He's not pacing the living room or, or tapping his foot impatiently, running through the scolding you're going to get or how he's going to send you to bed without supper. No, he's running to you with open arms and lavishing mercy and grace and clothing you in fine clothes and jewelry and getting the party going. And so this is a beautiful story, no doubt. But while everything I said is essentially the gospel, right, we can chew on that forever. Like, it's so good. It's not the whole story. So there's another brother involved. And dare I say, it's actually the son that we're supposed to pay more attention to. So remember where we're at in, the, in you know, Jesus' life right now. So he's talking to the Pharisees who've been upset and offended that he's fraternizing with these notorious sinners. And in this story, we see the elder brother reacting in very much the same way. I mean, he's been doing everything he was supposed to do. He's kept the farm going. He's obeyed his father. He's been the good kid. And instead of being excited that his brother has returned home, he's upset and offended that the father would just welcome him back so readily. So when the Pharisees heard this story, it wasn't this like, oh, how sweet. God is so compassionate. It wasn't this precious, lovely story about his compassion for the lost. It was more like a calling out of their self-righteousness and pride. After all, they're the religious elite. They're not only checking all the boxes, right? Like they're adding to the list and then checking those boxes. So the fact that a rabbi, don't even get me started on this whole Messiah thing, but just a rabbi is teaching and eating with tax collectors and sex workers and people who are obvious, blatant sinners, absolutely appalling and shameful. And so this story is a very small way. It shows just how self-centered and petulant the older brother is. He's petty. And in the same moment, it's pointing a finger at the Pharisees for being just as self-centered and petulant. As Tim Keller in his book Prodigal God puts it, Jesus wants to show them their blindness 
narrowness, and self-righteousness. And how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. It is a mistake then to think that Jesus tells this story primarily to assure younger brothers of his unconditional love. So for us reading this text today, especially, particularly, those of us who call ourselves Christians, we can't just identify with the younger brother. In each one of us, there's this little older brother that thinks they know what is right and just. I can't bear the thought that someone who would stray so far can be rewarded greater than those of us who keep on the straight and narrow. It's not fair. And some of us might feel this more strongly than others, but I do think that many of us have the propensity to treat religion as a prescription for how to live a good life and how to be a good person. And we look to God for our list of do's and don'ts, right? And we think if we just do all the right things, say all the right things, be all the right things, then maybe, just maybe, we'll be worthy of God's love and be as rewarded on earth, rewarded on earth and in heaven. And it's really easy to do. I'm not just calling you out. I am in this camp. I, it is, mm, it's so strong within me, and it always has been to be this older brother, um, even growing up. So I'm the younger sibling in real life. Uh, my sister is six years older than me, um, but that has never stopped me from acting like the older brother, okay? Um, I, listen, I was a delightful child. Um, <laughs> I was so self-righteous, and honestly, I was uh, probably such a pain in the butt to my sister. So uh, when she was a teenager, so like she's, let's say, 16, 17, that means I'm 10 or 11, okay? Very mature, 10 or 11-year-old. Um, so she was a teenager. She acted like a normal teenager, right? Like she hung out with her friends, she went cruising down Main Street, she went to parties on the weekends, and dare I say, she listened to rap music. Thank you for the, <gasps> I know, I know, I, bless my heart, 10-year-old me thought she was wild. She's wild, okay? And I, in comparison, was the good girl. So, I mean, it went so far, there's this one specific time that she was driving somewhere, we were ba she was backing out of our driveway, and she put on a particularly explicit rap song. And I jumped out of the moving vehicle. <laughs> so as to not be tainted <laughs> by the cuss words. <laughs> that is some serious, nonsense older brother behavior, right? Like, ugh, okay. And shockingly, amazingly, my sister didn't really like hanging out with me. <laughs> Imagine being 16 and not wanting to hang out with a 10-year-old who's jumping out of a moving vehicle to avoid rap music. Shocking, I know. But seriously, it really is easy to get caught up in our little Christian bubble, so much so that we start to label self-righteousness and judgment as holiness and piety. And it makes me wonder what the lost see when they look at our churches. 
Do they see their heavenly father running towards them with open arms? And the church, the elder brothers who've kept the lights on and kept the place running, do they see us coming to celebrate with them? Do they see us smiling and welcoming them home? Or do they see a fence that we've built? Or dare I say, a wall? Do they see book bans and misinformation and hateful words spewed on street corners at protests and in Facebook feeds? Do they know we are Christians by our love? Or do they know we are Christians by our hate? Ooh, sorry. Do they look over the father's shoulder and see older brothers who are all too willing to push them aside, to demean them, and to dehumanize them? And when they finally do come home, do we just approach them and ask for their 10-step plan on how they're going to make themselves right and worthy? Well, did you, did you, are you done hanging out with those people? Did you really repent? Are, are you going to join a Bible study? Are you going to serve? What are you going to do? How are you going to make yourself good? We want them to prove it. And it's probably because we are so deeply insecure about our own rightness and our own worthiness. Our identity is wrapped up in our performance and achievements for God rather than the free grace that he has given us. And if you're sitting in this room and you think this doesn't apply to you, I would challenge you to assess how you react to those whose lifestyles are different than yours. How do you act towards those who have a checkered past, or dare I say, a checkered present? Is your instinct to pull away or push closer? The American church, and I'll, I'll say it, the predominantly white evangelical American church is full of people with older brother syndrome. And sadly, this only gets worse the more we linger in our little bubbles, which when they go unchecked become echo chambers for our own moralism and judgment. And before long, we too are in a pig pit. It's only worse because we just can't see the mud for what it is. So I just said some pretty heavy stuff, um, and I'm thank you for none of you walking out. Um, and maybe you're thinking about it, or you're thinking about writing a very strongly worded email later, and that's okay, because you know what? I bet the Pharisees would have really liked to write some strongly worded emails. Now, I'm not calling you a Pharisee, per se, um, but I do just want you to grasp just a hair how inflammatory this story was for them hearing it. It was appalling. And it ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. The father has come out to beg the older son to join the party and has gently and lovingly explained why this is such a big deal. But we don't know what this fictional older brother decided to do. He probably stormed off and was not happy. So now maybe you're expecting me to tell you, all you older brothers in the room, sorry, 
I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm there too. I'm there too. Okay. Um, to get your act together and just suck it up and come to the party. And yeah, do that. Um, but I also think that we would benefit from maybe like backing out of the story and the metaphor for just a second. Because ultimately, um, we all really do have both the, a little bit of younger brother and a little bit of older brother within us, right? And we need saved from both of them. So again, to remind you all of Luke 15, we've got these lost parables, right? So um, in both parables, the one with the sheep and the coin, uh, the person that lost the thing is desperately trying to find them again. And yet here, in this story, we didn't really see that. And I think Jesus is intentionally trying to make us feel like, oh, oh, something is different here. There's a gap. There's something missing. And so we're starting to yearn for the son that would go searching for his lost brother. Because that is what a true brother would do. He would go out and he would search for his brother and bring him back home no matter what the expense is. And there can be no doubt, it would only be at the elder brother's expense that the younger brother could come home. Like literally in the story with the, the inheritance, like the inheritance was gone. If that kid comes home and becomes a son again, what's left of the inheritance partly goes to him. And the elder brother has to give up part of what is his. But the thing about mercy is that it is costly. It's expensive. And forgiveness is free for the forgiven, right? But it will always cost something to the one who is doling it out. Although the fictional younger brother doesn't have this kind of older brother to look after him, we do. And so I'm going to quote Tim Keller again. Um, if you're interested, just read Prodigal God. It's a very good book. Um, uh, but I'm going to just, it's a long quote. I'm going to read it because he's going to say it way better than I am. And, you know, we love him. Okay. Um, so there it is. Sorry if you can't, if it's too small. Um, so he says, and we have him. Think of the kind of brothers we need. We need one who does not just go to the next country to find us, but who will come all the way from heaven to earth. We need one who is willing to pay not just a finite amount of money, but at the infinite cost of his own life to bring us into God's family. For our debt is so much greater. Either as the elder brothers or as younger brothers, we have rebelled against the Father. We deserve alienation, isolation, and rejection. The point of the parable is that forgiveness always involves a price. Someone has to pay. There is no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. Our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross in our place. So you may remember, if not, get out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, when I preached on the wineskins, like a couple months ago, um, I said we needed to ask ourselves some questions when we were engaging with parables. And those were, what does this parable reveal about Jesus and God's kingdom? And what does this teach me about what the world looks like when God is in charge? 
So for me, this parable reveals Jesus as our true older brother and, the king, and God's kingdom as a place where the door is always open. And if you're in this room and you're feeling like the lost younger brother, like you're floundering in the pig pits, or even if you're just like a little iffy on this whole Jesus thing, I just need you to know that there is a place already set for you at the table. Like the, the forks and the knives are out. It's already set for you. And no one and nothing can change that. It is a standing invitation. And if you're an elder brother in the room, hiding behind forced morality and joyless servitude, I need you to know that the Father's mercy and love does not come with strings attached. Your endless toiling can stop because there is a seat at the table for you too. We are all amazingly saved by the one who paid the ultimate price so that we don't have to be a slave to our wild depravity or to our proud hypocrisy. It is in this way that we see God revealed as the ultimate prodigal. We'll pull up that definition again. Um, his love is extravagantly lavished on us. His mercy is poured out without hesitation. We can't even finish our sentence. And he's starting the party. And by our human understanding, it almost seems reckless or foolish to give all of that to humans who, to be honest, can never get it right. And yet his compassion is boundless and his justice is unending. So as we close, um, I'm going to let Romans 8 further describe the Father's reckless extravagance towards us. Starting in verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Jesus Christ died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. And I am convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat>